Hey, welcome to the 47th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we are talking to Jim Cummings, winner of Sundance's Grand Jury Prize for his short film, Thunder Road. It's a really interesting story about how he made the short, how much it cost him, how he came up with the idea, and kind of the repercussions of winning the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. To me, what the most interesting part is, is just, you know, how kind of simple his short film is. It's one shot. It stars him, and there's no cuts, and yeah, he won Sundance. So I think all of our listeners could do that. Yeah, it's a success story about executing a great idea perfectly. In addition, we'll be talking a little bit about some listener questions. So uh, let's hop into it. Yeah. Um, before we get to that, though, Matt, I just for this week was curious to know, what um, have you been working on lately? Oh, I, you know, I love talking about myself. So this is perfect. Uh, yeah, so this week, you know, uh, we've been talking about, I've been developing and writing a bunch of stuff, turned it in a couple drafts, blah, blah, blah. The funny thing that happened today, I was going to have a big meeting uh, today and it got pushed till tomorrow and I realized we've never talked about how often Hollywood meetings get pushed and how uh, I remember when I was younger and like they were a lot harder to come by. I would be so excited, so excited, so excited for like even a general, like just like sitting down to talk to someone about, you know, what they do and just getting to know someone. And they would get pushed all the time and it's very easy to take that personally. And then I worked in development and realized, oh shoot, you do not need to take it personally at all. Um, People get, especially when you're like meeting with a couple different people, schedules are so hard to coordinate. That's why assistants exist. It's because schedules are so hard to deal with that it literally takes a person whose main job it is to manage that schedule. And so... But when you are working in development, if Steven Spielberg's like, hey, I can come in on Wednesday at 10 p.m., you would make it happen. You make it happen for Jon Stewart and, um, you know, Tosh or whatever. Yeah, definitely. But... um, So there is something mildly insulting about how important you are when your meeting gets pushed, right? Yes, it is mildly insulting, but you have to be honest with yourself. Are you Steven Spielberg? Are you Daniel Tosh? Are you John Stewart? The answer is no. You never know. Those guys don't might, worry about are it. probably listening to our podcast and yeah. saying, actually, I am one of those guys. So if, yeah, you guys, you can fast forward, <laughs> but for the rest of us, especially if it's a general, they can be very excited about you and be very interested in you. But that if, if John Stewart needs to meet with Kent Alterman and Doug Herzog, those two dudes have equally crazy schedules. You know, one of them has to like go take an emergency meeting with Key and Peele. You know, that stuff happens all the time. And so, you know, I think actually the the truth is the difference between Steven Spielberg and us is that Steven Spielberg's assistant is dealing with all of the rescheduling. And so he doesn't even know that he didn't, that his meeting fell through. He's just, you know, going where they're pointing him. You know what right. I mean? Yeah, he makes zero decisions of his own. Yeah, exactly. So, what a director. So when your uh, first meeting gets pushed, don't worry about it, guys. Say okay. Yeah, all kidding aside, it is something that is a little surprising at first, but is just par for the course. I mean, I think when I was pitching the show, like some of our meetings got pushed till after kind of pitching season. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. uh, okay. I mean, what's the point of even having the meeting now? It's too late. So it's just something... The longer you work in the business, the more kind of you can right. plan around that and expect it. It is worth it to say what part of town you're coming from to an assistant because those assistants know, like, if you are on the east side and you're coming to a meeting in Santa Monica, which is where Viacom is based, you know, if you, like, took off work and you just drove an hour in traffic and you're going to drive an hour back, sometimes maybe they can help you out and prioritize things a little bit more if that's possible. Yeah. I've never shown up to a meeting that's been canceled. Have you? I have um, been on the other side of that. Yeah. It's the worst. Really? Yeah. You're like, Oh, sorry. We forgot to cancel you. Yeah. I mean like I'm there. So obviously like I would love to just take the meeting, but in those circumstances it was like, you know, there were people above my pay grade who also needed to be there to really make the decisions. And so I could, I would love to shoot the shit with these very funny people and did plenty of times, but sometimes it was like, well, we well know we're working together. We're so sorry. This won't ever happen again. We'll come to you next time. Wow. That's crazy. Well, yeah, sounds cool. I hope uh, your meeting doesn't get pushed again. 
<laughs> Me too. I hope you can talk about what happened in that meeting in our next catch up. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, well, thanks, man. Well, you know, in the meantime, Oren, I would really love to know what you've been working on lately. I bet you would. So I'm directing a commercial tomorrow for a Japanese video game, a commercial that you were also up for, but I was hanging out with the producers a lot more <laughs> the oh, week man. before. So it's uh, it's weird working with Matt and seeing him on a weekly basis because we've mentioned this so many times. We're like always up against each other for these jobs. Usually both of us don't get them, but on occasion one of us does get them. <laughs> have I? I've never beat you out for a job, though. Um, right? I think you might have, or you might have been offered a job that I haven't that you weren't been on offered. the list for. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I mean, I'm sure we're on a lot of the same lists. I've actually been talking about this a lot today. I just talked about it before we started recording that I'm actively trying to like differentiate myself from you and matt pollock and like sure the other guys that yeah, work you don't want to be on the laundry list of matt's and orens yeah because yeah, yeah oren bremer because it's from what abby fuller told us i want if people want like you know like some kind of naturalistic comedy in a room while people are watching tv or something i'd like for them to go to matt enlow and if they have somebody you know blowing up a house i'd like them to come to me and if you know, they want something super like, like stylized visual comedy. Maybe they're going to like Matt Pollock. I don't know. I'm just trying to, to carve a space carve out a so that, up. you know, because I think, look, I think you and I, and all of us can do most of these jobs, but the farther we go in our career and the more we're trying to like put our signature on things, I think the more specific it, it's helpful if we are. Anyway, so tomorrow's commercial, we'll see how it comes out. It's a, for a Japanese video game called Yokai Watch Wibble Wobble, um, which is, I guess, has millions of downloads and is very big in Japan. Huge in Japan. It's actually big. It was a game called Yokai Watch for the Nintendo DS, and now they made a mobile game called Yokai, Yokai Watch Wibble Wobble. <laughs> and it's about these like little sentient creatures that are invisible and are among us and they make us do embarrassing things. For instance, a creature named Cheek Squeak, if you ever fart on accident, it's because Cheek Squeak because has of made Cheek you Squeak. do it. Or if you have to pee uncontrollably for some reason, that's because of Fidgefint, which is a little elephant. Boy, that's super Japanese, isn't it? Right? Yeah, like they, it's I like Pokemon-y. Like po- it's like Pokemon meets like, me- I'm so stupid, but like I think <laughs> like Shintoism maybe? Like there's uh. like like the same sort of ideas of like, objects having spirits or like like it's a miyazaki almost right like like the forest having a spirit or like they're being kind of like right, that we're kind of influenced by these invisible forces around us exactly from outside of and, and that they're personified in like kind of sprightly sort of magical creatures right yeah i guess it does sound very japanese which is some of the interesting challenges in tomorrow's shoot that were there's definitely a little bit of like a culture barrier in terms of like what we think is funny versus what they think is funny the japanese clients and so i'm going to talk a little bit about it in our unpaid endorsement so it's fun and hopefully you guys can see the commercial i think it'll might be out by the time this podcast airs or broadcasts or streams (laughs) probably cool well let's hop into it with jim cummings cool well welcome jim Thank How's you it going, man? It's going well. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great. I'm so excited to have you. Uh, you won Sundance. I did, for shorts. So tell us specifically, jury prize, right? The grand jury. Grand jury. Is yeah. there a non-grand jury? There is. There's a U.S. jury prize, and then there's an international jury prize, and then I think there's a jury for animation and documentary. And, and the, grand the grand jury, jury. that's the one you pay him $1,000 and you get the prize? That's the one you sneak under the table. It's actually 1000 I wish. Yeah. Oh, what's it? Oh, grand, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, math. Yeah. Cool. Great. So, so how was that? You t- well, first off, tell us a little bit about your short. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the short is about a police officer eulogizing his mother at her funeral. And he gets up and loved his mom a whole lot and then has a meltdown in front of a bunch of people and then sings and dances to a Bruce Springsteen song because his mom was a dancer and it was one of her favorite songs. And then it kind of gets cut off and it's just this weird 13-minute shot of this dude having a public meltdown. And before I called her mom, she was Brenda. Sorry, uh, I don't know if I can keep going. 
It's cool. I'm fine. She was just so wonderful, and I gave her hell growing up. <laughs> we gave each other hell, and it gets to you when you get older. Uh, and I'm one of the good guys now. <laughs> but I was just mean to her and lied to her and I didn't know any better and it's too late. Uh, I tell my daughter sometimes, hey, never say anything mean to me. <laughs> not, for, you know, not for her sake. I've, I can, I'm a grown man. Um, but I would hate for her to have to look back. I was just stupid. I was just so stupid. So it's a, it's a single continuous take and you wrote and directed and starred? That's right. Um, I do love, you know, it's it's one of those movies where it's like, it's a little unclear, like, uh, like how am I supposed to be laughing at this guy or with this guy? Like it takes a little bit of time because you're at a funeral and it's very emotional and you're very convincingly emotional. It's a comedy. Yeah, it's, right. a, it's a comedy. Yeah, yeah. That, that we're not... We're cringing, and that cringe is supposed to result in a laugh. But wait, can, I'm going to rewind just for a sure. little more context, which is, first of all, your short, th- it's called Thunder Road, and it's you can watch it on Vimeo right now. So check it out, because I think watching it will make this whole interview uh, a lot better. And I have so many questions about like how you came up with it and how you decided to make it be a oneer and how you wrote it and all, all that stuff. But let's answer Matt's question first, which was, I was just was saying I liked it. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> but about the the comedy and drama dance. Oh yeah, that was that was for in the DNA from the beginning. We were like, we really wanted to confuse the audience and make sure that they didn't know if it was a comedy or a drama throughout. And that came mm-hmm. down to like the color correction. Mm-hmm. Like we were coloring it, and it kind of looked a little green, and it looked a little a little bit too dramatic. It looked mm-hmm. like the Born Identity or something like that. And then, yeah, we just like colored it kind of plain and. I don't know. It just worked. It was uh, it was one of those things where like we didn't want to give away the fact that it was supposed to be funny or give away the fact that it was supposed to be heartbreaking and uh, and then let the audience decide. It's also why we didn't cut. We didn't like cut back to the audience to show what they should be thinking, mm-hmm. like the the funeral audience, because that was going to give the short film audience an idea of how they should be feeling. And it's so important for people to just build assumptions about what they should be feeling when they're watching that movie. Right. They're experiencing it like everyone else in the chapel. Yeah. Yeah, and so so it's a short, it's one shot, it's 13 minutes long? Yeah. Wow, so you used up in one entire reel of film, I'm assuming. Um, and you're the main guy in it. Yeah, I play the police officer. And it's really awesome, so you guys have to check it out. So how, can we talk about the origination? Like how, like did you come up with parameters? Like I want to make a short that shows off my acting and directing and dramatic and comedic sensibilities but i only have enough hard drive space for one take (laughs) uh how can i write something designed for that i i knew i wanted to make a short i knew i wanted to like do a showcase of my abilities and that's kind of where it started it was just like i'll just do something because i'm seeing all the stuff that's really not that funny and it's supposed to be or really not that dramatic and it's supposed to be and i was like i was like god i just want to do something and i was in a hot tub with my buddy pj He's an actor, and he told me the story about a friend of his. It was like a performing arts student, and he eulogized his mother at her funeral by singing two songs, I think. And uh, and I was like, God, what does that sound like? Like, what is that? Did anybody film that? I'd love to see what that looks like. And he said, No. Why would somebody film that? And then I was like, All right, yeah, good point. And then I just thought, Well, maybe that would be a cool idea for like an actor's monologue. Like that could be. A, I feel like I've seen the best man bomb at the right. speech um, but I've never seen a bad eulogy and then I was at I was at College Humor and it was actually like my second week and I was at the retreat for Branded and I was in the sun all day and I got drunk and then I was in the van coming back and Thunder Road came on the radio and I was listening to it and I was kind of in the background but uh, I feel like I really heard it then and like for whatever reason I was in that state of mm-hmm. like you know exhaustion and uh I, I knew all the lyrics because it was one of my mom. It is my mom's favorite song, and I, had, you know, heard it a thousand times in college. But then it really hit me, and I was like, "God, my mom would have heard this when she was sixteen. And all this stuff in the movie, like it kind of came through the song. 
And I was like, oh, God, I would sing this song if my mom died. I wouldn't do a Bible reading. I'd, do, I'd probably do one of these. And I was like, what if I just fucked it up so terribly? Like, that could be so funny. And, like, also sad. And, like, Pixar movies are some of my favorites. I was like, that'd be so cool to do something that's short. And then, um, and then I was like, what if I was, what if I was somebody that couldn't have a meltdown in front of people? What if I was like, I was a Marine and I had like a bunch of my Marine buddies in the audience with me and that would be like, I don't know, uh, about tough guys and that mentality. And then I was like, what if I was a cop? And then I met these two police officers a couple of days later in a pizzeria and they said that you have to wear the uniform if you go to a funeral in California. And in New York, they have like the white gloves and like the mm-hmm. special jacket. Wait, I mean, it's like, if you're a police officer and you go to a funeral... Yeah, of anyone that you know. I think it's. I think it's. Yeah, I think it's with everybody. That Even you know. when you're off duty. I think so. Yeah, I think it's like just tradition. I don't think it's like enforced or anything okay. like that. But a lot of cops will yeah. wear their uniforms. Your dress right. uniform or whatever. Yeah, like like as a magician, I wear my tuxedo to most formal events. My cop cop buddy asked me if he should bring if I thought he should bring his gun to our high school reunion, and I was like, no. He's like, I'm going to bring it just, just in case. You've just got a dumb you friend know. is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you're not listening to the podcast. But um, I, uh, they said that, and I was like, that would be so funny to see a cop in 2016 doing it. And I started growing my mustache the next day. I was like, this is this is it. And I had it when I was at college. Sure. Where I'm at. It was I, like, I thought it was for November. No, no. So, I sh- yeah, we shot it on October 10th. It was like... Yeah, I guess I could have been growing it in for November. Um, but, yeah, no, I shot it in, in early October. And... Uh, yeah, it was just like a six-hour shoot. It was one of the easiest shoots I'd had all year. But I'd been rehearsing it on the drives to work and on the drives home. I could do three rehearsals on the drive to work and three rehearsals on the drive home. And then all the good stuff that I was like, I was kind of like writing it while rehearsing it. And mm-hmm. so I was like doing it into my phone uh, when it was a good line or something. And then I just transcribed that into screenplay format when I got home to my sad, dark apartment. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. So you were improvising like while you were writing it. Yeah. So there's no there's no improv in the film itself. There's like four lines. There are four words that are different between the takes in the sixth take, which is the one that we used. And I said, we got people here. I said, uh, thank you guys for coming, Cap and Kev. We got people here, Judy. And that we got people here was something that is mm-hmm. the only difference from the rest of the takes. And did you use your last take or did you? It was the last yeah. one. Yeah. It was. Um, I think the performance in the second one is better. But we weren't really there yet as like a crew. It was still pretty early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And the sound, I think, fucked up. And I was just like, all right, well, let's just do it a couple more times. And then for the consequential several takes after that, I was like, I can do it better. I can do it better. And then the sixth one, I was like, I'm really happy with that one. And the DP, Drew Daniels, was like, I think we got it. And then that was the only one that I watched that day. All the other ones, I was like, let's just go back. Let's just go back. And I was watching... Um, Pixar movies. I was watching Toy Story three and Inside Out on my iPad between the takes, and uh, and Summer Heights High by Chris Lilly to like kind of stay emotional, like get sad. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I was. Getting, it's a little tiny bit of a spoiler, but you do shed a tear. Yeah. Did you do that all six takes? Um, I think so. I think the second one was the most intense, but I tried to. Um, it, I mean, you can't control it, so it's like. But I think like I think you, I did. You weren't aiming for a specific part. To no. get emotional. I mean, no. it, it wasn't written into the... So there was, yeah. The, the, it was supposed to be this dude who, like, gradually builds to that moment of him going, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And that was supposed to be the most emotional that he gets. And so around then was a good time for me to cry. And usually uh, I would hit it. I think I cried, like, four out of the six takes. And then that one, it was just the perfect timing of, like, talking about Springsteen in America and my mom. And then... The tear came. Now, it was it hard to stay emotional while staring at Tony Yacenda in the audience? Tony was really helpful, actually. Tony's a big Springsteen fan himself, and uh, it is his favorite song. And uh, I think I've ruined it for him forever. Uh, <laughs> but no, Dustin Hahn was in the front row, too. Dustin's like this awesome writer and director, and uh, and my buddy PJ as well. And it was just great to like have them there. And Dan Peralt as well. I'm not sure if you guys know Dan. But it was great to have them there. So between takes, I was like, what do you think? What did I do? Like, and they were like, yeah, you got this part. This part could use work. Like, That oh, was wow. really wonderful. So you Tony's just been the- on the podcast before. And he's That's a, right. You guys should listen to his episode. It's really cool. Also, Jim, uh, didn't you produce Save That Money? I did, yeah. Which, by the way, has 53 million views on YouTube. Yeah. Not that Fuck, many. Man, that's- but it's a good video. Thank you so much. So you're rich now, yeah? That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. a cent for every... Well, YouTube only pays you back ba- a percentage based on your budget, right? <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're still in the poorhouse. <laughs> well, cool, yeah. Listeners will definitely drop a link to that episode if you want to catch yeah, up. Yeah, Tony's episode. So who paid for this short? 
I did. I uh, I'd saved up. I'd saved up from college humor, and then I had like probably like five or six grand set aside, and then. I was like, yeah, I can do it. We'll do it off of this. Cause I was looking at like how much it costs to rent one of those zoom lenses and then like a cop uniform and all that stuff. Wait, that's a zoom lens. It's not a dolly. It's a dolly it? and a zoom. Yeah. We, we had a Fisher dolly and then a 24 to 290 oh. Optimo lens. And that was all choreographed. Like when he zooms in and yeah, when he zooms out. Absolutely. I yeah. did not even notice the zooms at all. Yeah. Which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Um, I love a zoom. I love yeah. like an overt zoom too. Yeah. Like I'm, I, I like knowing that it looks like a zoom. Yeah. Have but you seen Krisha? No. Krisha is really wonderful. It's a 24 put it out, but I was an associate producer on that. Andrew Daniels was, that's how I met Drew. He was the DP of that. And it's very zoomy and really Sweet, cool. Yeah. Sold. Same kind of lens too. It was the Ingenieur 24 to 290. Yeah. It's beautiful. If you lens. want range. <laughs> yeah. That's the lens to get. That's the one, that's the one to do. Yeah. No, if you watch it, I mean, it has, there's a good amount of movement. I mean, it's kind of subtle at first and it gets a little bigger later when you walk to the back of the room yeah but yeah i did not notice the zooms at all that's cool yeah and then there's like a subtle zoom at the very end on me after the girl pulls her oh, arm away did i maybe i noticed i don't know that's good i was trying i always whenever i watch a shot i always try to imagine how the dolly track is set up mm. and so obviously you had track going down the middle of the aisle yeah but yeah no it was cool it was funny i had that where are I, the lights by the way because oh no the lights are behind the right side of camera, right? It was actually, no. So it was, we had uh, those natural windows along the side. And so we had some bounces. Um, and then we had a four bank above me. It's a church. So we had rafters, which is really wonderful. You can like oh, strap right. to the rafters. Oh. And then that was like kind of where the general dance area was. And then there was a, there was a smaller blue kicker on me in the back pew, but that was it. Everything else is natural. Wait, so like a four bank and a kicker and that's it? Uh, oh, no, we actually had two lights in the back to make it look like there were windows back there. So like the back curtains for both sides of the arches that had lights behind them. But yeah, otherwise that was it. Pretty. And the reason color. I'm asking if you haven't seen the short is because it's, it is one shot, but we kind of it probably like covers 270 degrees of the room or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We see most of the room. Yeah. In that shot. Yeah, that's the trouble with Warners. We just wrapped a series for full screen and we did six more single takes and a lot of it is handheld and running around between locations and it's like lighting is so difficult. Do you mind if we ask how much you ended up spending on the short? Uh, yeah, so I ended up spending, I, I guess I probably spent all in all 12000 but then you get probably 4000 of that back because we had to do a deposit for the location and then we had to do a deposit for the Fisher Dolly as well. So I think it's only like very cheap. It was like 250 bucks a day to rent the dolly, but the deposit is like two and a half grand or something yeah. like that. So in order yeah. to make a $7,000 movie, I had to spend like 12 grand, which is crazy. You can use credit cards. Yeah, I didn't. I, I was I was very lucky that I didn't do that. But I, I got about two and a half weeks out from production, maybe two weeks after production, I realized that there was just no way that I was going to be able to do it with the savings that I had. And uh, I, I... What what were like the big expenses? It was location? that. It was the location. I didn't realize, like, I, I, when my producer had locked down the location, I didn't think that we were going to have to shoot. I didn't know that we had to have a permit for shooting indoors with on private property. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, technically you do. Yeah. 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 It, it depends on... Often you don't get a permit. Yeah, most of the time people don't get them. Yeah, but, but, but the production was so small, and we had so many, pe like, strangers coming. We had, like, LA Casting and Craigslist actors to come into the background. Like, we, we, we didn't want to have any risk. And so it was like, that's 812 bucks or whatever for that. So I, I, like, I think it was, like, two weeks out, I was really scrambling. I was like, what am I going to do? And uh, so I moved to LA because my wife left me, and I still had our wedding rings lying around, and I sold them. Are you serious? I did. I, I, I sold them in the jewelry district wandering around downtown and got three extra thousand dollars to make it. And then my mom gave me a thousand to finish it. To no kickstarting. Like. No, there was no kickstarting. I should have, looking back. We just kickstarted another production, a short film. Oh, cool. So four grand you kind of came up with out of nowhere and then you had another six grand saved so oh 12 grand you said it ended up costing you and you got like four back yeah it was like 11 or 12 for the entire thing but then we got yeah three or four grand back so basically for our listeners for around 10 grand you can make a short film that wins the grand jury prize at sundance it's that easy and then get, you don't even have to pay an editor well you're joking but oh, yeah. like her friend adam the film that won for a performance was shot in the the writer, actor, and co-director's like apartment. Yeah, and no, I am a one thousand percent not joking. Because okay, to cool. me, a lot of times, 
you know, you're like, well, you're like a new person in LA and you're like, how can I make something that goes to Sundance? Like, look at this thing. It has Ed Bagley Jr. in it and it's shot on like film. Like, how am I going to compete with that when I don't know anyone and I don't have any money? And then you look at your short, which I mean, it look, it looks amazing. And obviously you knew crew people that yeah. I'm sure helped you out. Yeah. So it took some, it, it was a lot of your experience in working in LA probably helped totally. you make it for that cheap, but still. But we're talking about people that you've done a ton of favors for. You know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the other part is that like, yeah, you're like well connected and all those things, but like you're putting in blood, sweat and tears, helping these people out. That's why they're there to help you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I think you know, we all, that's we all a know support that, system. You yeah. Know? Then obviously you can, people help each other, but I, yeah. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just saying like, you don't need to have like make a $200,000 short to win Sundance. Yeah, and I'm always shocked by that. Like, how do you get that money back? There's no way to do it. Like, you I can't. There's, yeah. Yeah, there's no way. Like, I couldn't make 12 grand off of this movie, and it, it you know, it, it did well for itself. It's, Is there a cash prize for the grand no, jury prize? No, the only cash prize that I've gotten was from the Shortlist Film Festival, and it was like the Pepsi Award, and they gave out five grand. But that was five grand worth of Pepsi. But yeah, it's a lifetime <laughs> supply. It's great. Yeah, actually, Jimmy, really let yourself go. It's kind yeah. Of sad. yeah, you can't see it. The <laughs> listeners can't see it, but I am at 350 pounds. Yeah, full five grand worth of Pepsi right there. There are festivals that give you, you know, I think AFI has a money award. We got, we got like five grand from AFI. It was for That's a feature, awesome. but I think the shorts also do. And there's the Heartland Film Festival gives $100,000 to yeah. the winning feature. Wow. And my, my movie played there and it was like down to us and one other movie. And obviously, we did not win it. But the movie that did win it is called Red Dog. And it was like a movie that had made like $20 million in Australia. It's like well, this Australian movie. So it seemed unfair. Sounds pretty good. It's pretty it good. It's pretty good. Good. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's got a dog in it. He's red. Red dog. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Wow. So, okay. So <laughs> I guess to rewind a little bit, what of your experience got you ready to make this short? Um, like, how did you know it was good before you made it? That's a tough question. I uh, I get that question a lot. I think um, I think really just like watching thousands of movies growing up. I went to film school, but I, I watched movies consistently. I'm sure like everybody that's listening did. And I always knew that I was a decent actor. And I always knew that the movies that I was working on weren't connecting with audiences and weren't making them laugh or making them cry. And uh, I don't know. I just... I listened uh, to audiences. I went to South by Southwest a couple times and I'd never been to Sundance before, but I listened to audiences in the theater and you can feel it when a movie isn't doing very well on the screen. It's really uncomfortable. And uh, I was like, God, I just never want to do that. And I made a, a really terrible feature in 2009 about post-Katrina New Orleans, which is where I'm from. And it, I just edited it for like a year and a half and there was no way of making it good. And I sat in the it audience. scripted. It was scripted, yeah, it was narrative fiction. And uh, I didn't act in that one, I just wrote and directed it. And uh, I was in the audience watching it with people at the New Orleans Film Festival, and I was like, I am never doing this again. And I was like, for two years, I was like, I'm, I'm a terrible filmmaker. This is, I'm terrible, I don't know what I'm doing. And I think it was because of that hate and like really refining my scripts in the future to be like, there cannot be a boring moment, even if it's small, even if it's a mannerism, that's something to carry the audience for those seconds. And uh, I think it was that that made me decent. And then also, like, I don't know. I, I feel like I was really unambitious when it came to making movies. I was also like a producer. I like produced for 10 years or something like that. And uh, in animation and shorts and commercials and, and music videos with Tony and uh, features. And then, uh, I don't know, I was, I was working at College Humor. And I was just seeing stuff on my Facebook feed that was getting lauded as very good. And I... I wasn't laughing and I wasn't, I wasn't moved by it, but I loved stuff like Bernardo Brito's short yearbook and like a lot of the shorts that I'd seen online that were moving. And I think that eventually, I don't know, like ground me down and, and made me ambitious. And yeah, yeah. That, that kind of dissatisfaction turned into ambition. That's awesome. I do talk like jealousy is like a really like big motivator for me. You know, like there's there's something really yeah, when frustrating you see when you see someone successful or you see good. your Facebook feed and people are like, oh, this is so great. And you're like, I don't know. It's not that great. Yeah. You know, and it's good to be supportive for people. I don't want to, you know, shit on that at all. But I think there is something about, you know, sensing that you can really kind of 
bring something out of you out of yourself yeah, you know as no, a result I mean, of that you i know? think the number one most inspirational part of film festivals is seeing movies and and thinking to yourself oh i could have made something better than that that's sure. like why why what i love about film festivals you go there you go to sundance even you go to the best festivals in the world just as a viewer and you're like yeah you're blown away by some things but other things are like hmm that's not that great so I, th- I think, yeah, I'm I'm with you guys. Like, that is a great way to be inspired. It, because, I mean, I think the negative spin on it is like saying like, oh, that's not that good. I can make something better. But the positive spin on it is like, hey, I think I could make something as good as that, you know? Yeah, I'd love like, to make something great. Like letting yeah. you kind of, like giving you permission to not be perfect, right? Well, I think there's also something about, you know, when you love movies, there's no shortage of great movies out there that people can watch right like if you're like i want to see the best thousand movies you know you're one google search away from figuring out you know how all of those movies right so when you're thinking about and comparing your work to those it can be pretty rough right but when you're all learning together whether you're in film school or you're like doing festival circuits or working in the internet like where people aren't you know quite as accomplished yet and haven't really come into their own in the same way that can be pretty pretty inspiring but anyway uh, <laughs> yeah but just to yeah. finish my question was like what prepared you for this and you you'd made a feature you kind of learned a lot of stuff on that i was curious do you think you learned anything from like the hundreds of shorts you probably produced at college humor like what was working and what was not working and yeah i'm trying to think of what i learned yeah it's tough i don't know i don't know what the the lesson that i learned there was like maybe maybe like it's easy to get people together to make something that has a short duration yeah and when you made it were you like was sundance kind of like your aim or were you like yeah we'll put it on youtube we'll submit it to some festivals we'll see what happens i yeah i think like my wildest dream i was like oh well it'll you know it'd be a cool internet video that might get staff picked on vimeo yeah, right. staff pick is kind of like the the, the pipe Sundance that would be of the cool. internet. Yeah. yeah, and then I shot it in October, which is like well past the deadline for Sundance. And I was like, all right, well, it might be neat because now it's kind of done. Like, it doesn't require any editing. I was doing sound design and stuff on that, and I didn't know anybody there. I reached out to somebody through Twitter. I like looked up Sundance programmer and just messaged her, and didn't hear back for three or four days and i was like i'll just submit to south by southwest and see what happens it was around the same deadline Wait, what did you write to her like hey i just made this awesome short you i was like hey yeah i was like hey i'm a producer but i made this short i forget what it was i should probably find the 140 characters <laughs> but i was like hey i'm wondering if i can get a deadline waiver and uh, they don't do fee waivers apparently you always have to pay for it which is great but she was like she got back to me four or five days later saying sorry everything got lost in the shuffle i get 300 requests a day and so she gave me one, which is great. I guess she gives everybody one. I don't know. Um, oh, so you you can ask on Twitter for a deadline waiver for Sundance and get it. I well, I did, but I was also like, I was one of the uh, producers on Cresha, and so like, I don't know if that had, had anything to do with it. I've spoken with the programmers since, and they've been like, they've been like, well, I don't know, you were a special case. You um, seem legitimate, like a I legitimate think so. filmmaker. Yeah, I think so, but I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe it is democratic. I don't know. I didn't. It was just. It was just happenstance that I submitted, and then I got in, and I was like thrilled that I was able to submit. So you win the grand jury prize. That's probably fun. Probably get interviewed by a lot it. of people, yeah. right? At Sundance, interviewed by a lot of people. Um. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, that wasn't. Interviews always weird to me. I don't know. I like. We were shooting a web series the whole time. We didn't go there to do any of that stuff. We like. We went there, Dustin Hahn and PJ McCabe and I uh, came up with the idea to do this like self-deprecating web series about fame going to somebody's head. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, Sundance you have 2016. Seen it. Yeah, you've seen it. Okay, cool. So yeah, so we were like busy doing that. And it was just like, what can we imagine is going to happen there? There's going to be a lot of acclaim and fanfare and all of that stuff. Even before, we like I'd never been there. Um, and I was like, wouldn't it be great if we like got in and then we just made something about the wrong people getting into Sundance. And so we just bottomed it out. It was like me becoming a cocaine addict and like drinking NyQuil and just being a megalomaniac. And it was so much fun. And those two are so funny. And, and it was just the three of you making this it series was, together? It was the three of us. And then Drew Daniels shot it. Yeah. And then uh, and then uh, my co-producer, Jennifer, was also shooting sometimes. And then Ben Wiesner, who's my longtime producer, was there and he was shooting and producing and editing and stuff it was great it's like olympic village yeah we should pack condoms yeah they say yeah yeah like how olympic village like they my condoms right here sex all the time. your ring this is my condom why is it no a condom is so you use to get laid that gets you not laid <laughs> so i'm saying if we go out 
and and there are two girls there, and I'm getting off with one of them. And then you're yeah, talking yeah. to the other one. They're not going to be. They're going to realize that you're not a possibility. You put it in your pocket, and then when I go home with the other one, then you say, "Hey, guess what? I've been hiding this thing in my pocket for a while, and I'm actually married." That's weird. I just don't say that. Just don't bring it up at all. Cool. Okay, so you won the grand jury prize. I'm assuming you hear that like close to the end of the festival. Uh, yeah, it was like I think we got there on a Thursday or Friday, and then it was like Tuesday or Wednesday the next week, and then we had four or five days left at the festival. The, the The shorts awards are middle of the week so that they can do award screenings afterwards. Oh, that's oh, right. Like all the winners. And did you have a sense of like uh, how well it was doing before the awards? Yeah. So, yes. The premiere, they usually send the jurors to the premieres and then they don't sit through the Q&As. So it's like they'll go there, just watch the movies for the first time and then leave. So they have like the cinematic screening. And then if they want to, they can watch screeners afterwards, I think. But we went into the theater and it was this like just regular movie theater. And it was really wonderful. And we got to see all the other shorts there in our block. And then uh, this one guy was just like laughing hysterically throughout my short and kind of like, ruining it for the rest of the people. It was just like like covering up dialogue so that people couldn't really hear it. And then I was sitting at the front, I was kind of like looking back like this jackass. And then uh, Matt McManus, uh, my buddy, comes up after me. He's like, dude, that was Key from Key and Peele. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, cool, yeah, he's one of the jurors. Okay, great. Cool, great, yeah. you're set. So, yeah, so that was, that was pretty cool. And then progressively, that was like the, the most raucous laughter that was in a theater. I think probably because of him. If one person's laughing really hard, usually... He, yeah, are, a generous right. laugher is a real gift in an audience situation yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, I just play laughter on my iPhone Yeah, at most of my screenings. <laughs> And during eulogies. I feel bad because, yeah, I laugh at (laughs) eulogies all the time. Uh, No, I feel bad because I'm not a huge laugher. And so, like, when I go to a screening of a friend's, especially when I can think it's really funny and just be smiling and, like, nodding, you know? Yeah. Or, like, I'll give, like, a ha! It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Now, my wife does a lot of live shows, and it's like, there's certain people you must invite yeah, I'm not yeah. one of them. <laughs> yeah. You're never getting invited, <laughs> yeah. ever. Yeah, zero comps. Uh, so, then, so then it was laughter <coughs> for the first couple of screenings, and then as soon as they announced that we won, they played it last in the awards block, and then it was just silent throughout. There were a couple of laughs towards the dances, but like nobody really laughed at i think it was it was people were like okay this is the movie that won let's be really judgmental of it and it was great and it was like but it was great because like there's a lot of stuff that you sometimes laugh over that's really heartbreaking and then i had older people coming up afterwards saying like you didn't intend for it to be that funny did you and i was like no 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 it wasn't supposed to be that funny it's heartbreaking and then i got i got pulled inside Uh, one of the assistants emailed me so this is how you know that you're gonna win sundance i didn't but for future members of the festival i got emails from people being like hey uh the programmers want to meet up with you um they try and meet up with all the short filmmakers while they're here and i was like okay cool and i go out to brunch with these guys so i went out and talked told the story and uh the whole time they were just laughing at like everything that i was saying and i was like oh yeah cool these guys are really great these yes, guys are really uh, nice yeah, these programmers are so yeah. nice and then they love uh, movies and then that night we won and and I, I realized uh, one of the programmers came up to me and was like, you don't think we we like go out to brunch with all of the filmmakers, do you? There's 72 filmmakers here. Like, there's no, we wouldn't have time to do it. And I was like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like, <laughs> I should have known. Ah, dang. Yeah. You, don't, you guys don't have 10 brunches a day? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that's cool. So out of Sundance, what happened to you? Did you yeah, have yeah. any reps or anything beforehand? No, I didn't. I was, I was a nobody. I was just like a dude. And I, I mean, you had produced... Keisha, right? Kresha. Kresha. Yeah. And I had, I had done that, and I produced another film called The Grief of Others that had gone to Cannes the previous year, and I was like, I'd been producing for years. I was, you worked on Captain America, uh, yeah, Winter Soldier. Yeah, as a production assistant, I did, yeah, at ILM, doing special effects. Um, in the Bay Area? In the Bay Area, yeah. I lived oh. there before I moved down here. But yeah, no, I, uh, I was kind of a nobody, and then I just started making something, and that turned into Thunder Road, and then I got repped at William Morris, which was awesome. Um, was that at the festival that happened? I met up with Jeff Gorin, my agent at the festival at a Starbucks, and uh, that was really cool. I, I know somebody, um, Joe Austin, who's an awesome packaging agent. He's the reason uh, Swiss Army Man is here. They're like, there's oh, cool. packaging dudes for that. He's really great. He was my brother's roommate for four years of college, and so that was very lucky, and I always wanted to be signed there but i didn't have a reason to and then now they're revving me for writing acting and directing and i'm going out to 
do a bunch of cool stuff. Are they know? repping you for across the board, like TV, digital, film? Yeah, it's been neat. And, and I've been lucky enough to do, to at least audition for everything that they rep, which is really cool. Oh, cool. So what are you focusing on? Uh, right now, right now I'm kind of in, in y'all's space. So I listened to the last podcast about packaging and things like that. And I'm kind of, I'm doing that right now. It's been, so we wrapped and delivered our series for full screen about a month and a half ago. And that should be coming out in October, maybe February, depending. Wait, so off of the, just to get into the nuts and bolts of it, off of your short, William Morris thought they signed you. They're like, Hey, we want you to pitch ideas to all these people. And you met with full screen and you were like, I think I just did this one shot short. I want to explore that idea more. Let me see yeah. if I can get a series out of that. And you pitched that. No. So, so full screen had reached out before Sundance and uh, I met with the VP over there and Wait, had you sent them a link or like, how no. did they know to, so to reach out? Sundance sends out digital screeners, industry screeners, they're mm. called. So I had meetings in the five or six weeks before the festival to just like, Oh, between the official official announcement of the selections. I think they had already officially announced. And then a week later, the screeners went out to everybody. Mm-hmm. So I had people that had seen the film, and that was awesome. And I met up with full screen, and Dustin and I were working on the web series at the time, the Sundance 2016 thing. And then we're like, why don't we just do, like, they'd be interested in doing more, like, Thunder Road, a series like that. And it was actually their idea. They were like, could you turn this into a series? And I was like, I don't know if it would be this dude. Like, that's the most important sure. 12 minutes of that guy's life. There's nothing, you know. <laughs> right. What would it, it would be, you know, terrible. And so we made six more characters and then we wrote scripts for them and they were so supportive. They were just like really cool. They gave great notes and we shot them in April in uh, like a month and a half, maybe a month. And it was really cool. And, and you wrote them with Dustin? Or? Yeah, Dustin and I co-wrote and then uh, I directed all the episodes except for one. And uh, they're wonderful. They're really neat. One of my favorites is uh, about a Native American doing stand-up comedy for the first time. And... Uh, it's like a cowboy bar, and so he gets up and he's nervous, and then kind of bombs, but does a really good job. Like, but does it take place now, or does it take it place, place in now. like the yeah. early 1800s? No, it takes place now, and uh, it's it's like an open mic, and uh, it's really funny. And then Dustin plays a teacher at a parent-teacher night, having a meltdown, shouting at the parents, and they're all really wonderful. That and they're sounds, all monologues. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, there are a couple scenes. of them. Yeah, one of them. One of them is about a girl robbing a liquor store to get her dog back from the pound, and she gets shot at a whole bunch. So it's like it is virtuoso. It is like one person doing a lot of the heavy lifting, but it's ensemble for a couple of them, which is really great. What I love about that pitch, though, is that it's such a clear first step from like, hey, this here's this thing that I'm known for, right? here's how I kind of interpret that in a way that people will want to buy, you know, but without it being, you know, impure or anything like that. It's still a great idea. But I think that so often, you know, we talk about on the show, like, you know, you have this great idea, it gets you a little bit of heat and then you want to do something totally different. Yeah. And sometimes that kind of confuses people to the point that you don't get to yeah. make that next thing. That yeah. was my move. I like did the sports family film and I wanted to do like a fight club th- psychological thriller and people were like, well, go make a psychological thriller and come back to us. Yeah. But Eric Kissack, who we've had on this podcast, made a short called The Gunslinger. Yeah. That was a Vimeo staff He pick. reached out. He's a nice guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like that guy. He, and it has voiceover, like Nick Offerman does the voiceover yeah. for the whole thing. And then he just started getting all these commercial jobs where there's like voiceover. celebrity voiceover <laughs> yeah. that the people are interacting with, so... He kind of like transitioned that into kind of different versions of what he had he was yeah. known for. I think yeah. there's something to be said about sidestepping a little bit, you know. I mean, ideally, at the end of the day, we all get to do everything we want to do. But like, especially when you're kind of first teed up those early opportunities, you know, that doesn't yeah. make sense to for there to be a logic of like, oh, why is Jim pitching us this new idea? You yeah. know what I mean? I realize like that's the main thing that works with Thunder Road is like tone. And that's the thing, like that's the commodity of like making people laugh and cry. And that's a difficult thing to do. And so that's like the, the scripts that I'm getting from agents and people are like kind of dramatic comedies that could do both of those like live action Pixar movies, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Yeah, man. Killer. So you went on this round of meetings, right? So you kind of you you've already got heat before you even go to Sundance. Yeah. What changes after the win, right? Is that when things kind of start locking in, or? Uh, I had a I had about a hundred general meetings everywhere, and a um, hundred. 
Probably, yeah. Probably like probably like 50, no, probably like 60 or 70. That's probably closer to it, which is always funny, but you end up telling the story over and over again. And sure. so it's like, how did you do it? And it doesn't always mean anything. It doesn't like people just want to, I don't know, like talk to the dude. And, uh, and so that was really great was be able to like talk to people that are in all walks of life and do cool stuff, casting directors, um, network streaming platforms, just people, just like documentarians that liked it. And I had to get to hang out with those guys. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it was just a, a whirlwind looking at my calendar. It was just, it was just really an awesome privilege to, to do all of that. And now I'm kind of picking up the pieces of like, cool, what do I, what do I actually want to do now? Now that I've done a series, sure. two of them, I'm like, yeah, I want to, I want to do more stuff. What do you want to do next? I'm, uh, I'm making, <laughs> I'm, uh, there's a show that I really want to make about astronauts reintegrating into the suburbs. And, uh, we are in development with an awesome producer and, uh, we're going out in October to go and pitch that around. Killer. And is that a TV series? Or? It'll be a TV series. Yeah. Killer, man. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. Cool. So, and you're saying your agent is sending you feature scripts or? Yeah. A bunch of, um, I have like, I think I have like six people on my team. I have like junior agents and then like for casting and for packaging and for TV and digital. And it's just great. It's been, it's been so awesome to pick all of their brains individually. And has any of that turned into anything? Yeah. Yeah. We've been, I've been sending out, um, this thing that we want to do about a werewolf, which would be great fun. I'm talking to a couple of people, streaming platforms mainly to do that in the winter. And then, um, yeah, it's been, it's been cool. I'm, I'm auditioning for a big movie on Friday. Cool. We'll break a leg. Thanks dude. And uh-huh. so through all this stuff, you still have to create a lot of, basically all of your most promising jobs are coming from your ideas. Sure. Yeah. It's not just like a bunch of people sending you their. No. Scripts. Yeah. No. I mean, there's that, there's that great um, Mark Duplassism of uh, the cavalry isn't coming and oh, right. you know make movies not meetings and I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, you should be. We just kickstarted a, a movie that Julia Bales and I uh, uh, we co-directed and she wrote and we just like shot it in our living room. It's just like seeing all the stuff that screens at South by Southwest and Sundance. It's like we should just be making movies. Like, why are we talking about making movies? Like, why are we waiting for people to give us money to do it? We have the cameras. Like, we have the equipment. We're decent and actors. Let's just do it. And we did. Yeah, you have to be doing that. You have to be self-generating. Yeah. Have we endorsed that, Mark Duplass? The cavalry's not coming. I don't speech before. I don't know if we have. It's definitely worth Certainly linking to it's his South by Southwest keynote yeah. from 2015 or 2014. Yeah. And the gist is no matter yeah. like if you win the grand jury prize, it doesn't mean you can sit back and relax. It means like it's time to hit the gas pedal. Yeah. And it also means you might find yourself in a suit sleeping in the back of your car. Yeah. Right. You know, it's funny. It's a small tangent, but the next year, Joe Swanberg did the, uh, the uh, keynote mm-hmm. and i feel like because the duplass one had gone so viral and was really impactful for people you can see in the video he's like a, he's sweating it kind of hard for a effortless super cool accomplished guy yeah i maybe i'm just projecting but like i was like, like some oh, stiff man. competition yeah this yeah. is the he's follow like, up <laughs> yeah it was super funny so uh we'll link to both in the show notes everyone so we actually got a question from a listener that we should uh, maybe end the episode with it's from uh, a listener named christopher who loves our podcast jim so there is a person thank you for listening in case you were doubting yeah, thanks Chris. he was asking how we balance our relationship and family obligations with our professional careers he said that he married young in the film industry and he has these obligations to his spouse and he said that the fact that both Matt and I are married stuck out to him. He was curious if it had any impact on our professional lives. How do you balance the long hours, distant locations, et cetera, with the need to invest time into your marriage? Is this something you guys think about at all? Hope it's not too personal, but feels like a relevant question for filmmakers. Yeah, that's a tough one. I definitely, I definitely felt that three years ago. Uh, I'm speaking as a divorcee, so maybe I'm not the best person to be asking. Um, was you were married while you were working in the industry? Yeah, and I, I found I found that. I mean, there's like uh, Sam Harris talks about that. He talks about you very well could be 
curing malaria, but your toddler is still screaming. And like, if you hadn't had that child, maybe you would have done it. And, uh, that's one of those weird things that you have to battle. But dude, I was, uh, I was working full time and I was driving to work and I was crying in my car three times in each direction. Like, I, I'm sorry that you have responsibility, but everybody does. And make something small, make a short, make something on your phone. Like it's never been easier to make movies. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, that, that that's totally true. I, th- I think there's also something, you know, we're lucky that we are in relationships with people in the industry, you know, and I think that it makes it a lot easier to understand why you're shooting or why, why you have to sleep because you've got a, you know, a 2 PM call time and the sort of pressures that you're under, you know, I think, um, splitting the difference between you know being a professional and working all the time right that can be really grueling and people who are aspiring you know no matter what you still have to nurture your relationships because you have to have something to make a movie about right yeah and i think really your question chris is more about relationships rather than filmmaking because like it's not indicative of film like think think about any industry that you're going to have that same thing but like you're right i'm very lucky to be in a relationship where like if I'm writing something or she's writing something, we're going through it together because we do it together. Mm-hmm. That's not an innuendo. But, but I think it's, but I mean, pun intended. I think Chris's question comes from the fact that in filmmaking, it's so competitive and there's this idea that's floating around this entire town that if you work hard enough, you will make it. And I, that's even something that I think we talk about in the podcast. It's like, just shoot it. Don't sit around and wait for things. Make movies. Like, if you're sitting still and just watching TV, yeah, it might be good for research, but until you start making things, it's not going to count for anything. And if you have to, you know, drive an Uber car during the day to make money and then, you know, watch your kid at night, like, when are you going to make movies? So it, it is a tougher industry. It's also much harder to make a living. Yeah, um, and the people that are successful, it is like... you hear about these stories like Diablo Cody who was writing while working at Walmart and like the only thing she knew about screenwriting was that the dialogue was in the middle Uh, like all these really shoot heartwarming stories I've been doing it wrong (laughs) 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 you know in parentheticals Um, uh, you hear all these stories about successful people that are succeeding in, in the indie world and really it is like seeing those billboards on the highway for casinos of like this person won and you can win too and it's like that's the stuff that we sell to each other and it is bullshit it really does come down to work is important but also working your ass off and like I mean I yeah I, I, I'm guilty of not being the best boyfriend while making something because it had to be amazing like I was I was driving safer because I was worried that I would die before I could finish <laughs> Thunder Road and like you you do have these weird neuroses and psychosis of having to make something cool and it's terrible fucking William Faulkner was a you know, spousal abuser like all of these terrible things to make these Im- impeccable works I don't know I am um, I don't know. It, it takes a lot. And it, I, I remember looking back at email. Sorry, Chris, this is a roundabout way of answering your question. But um, I was looking back at emails and texts with my mom while I was writing and getting close to shooting. And I kept saying, it's going to be so good. It's going to be so, 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 so good. It's going to be so good. And I kept saying that to people. And I felt it clearly just from looking back at, at the writing. And either you should be working on making something that feels that way or you should be with someone that makes you feel that way. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, you know, I think um, we were talking about this before the podcast, and Oren, your wife, made a, a really astute observation. Filmmaking is a little different than, you know, a regular job, right? Like, as an artist, you, so much of yourself is invested in in your profession and your craft. You know, I'm a filmmaker as much as I am a person, you know? And so that makes it so much harder to tear yourself away from that passion and that craft when you've got other obligations. And so it it is hard for people who don't have that sort of commitment or, or obsession to understand why it is that you're, you know, staying up all night. Yeah. Or, like there's so many people you know, that are like, it's the weekend. Stop talking about work. You know, you're <laughs> like, no, I love work. This yeah. is, this is who like, I am. This is, this is what it. I, yeah. yeah, this is all, all, I love talking about it. I think, I don't know, to me, when I first moved to LA, I very much had that attitude. Like, I can't invest time and money into a girlfriend because I need to invest that time and money into my work. And I read this book about directing. I forget. It wasn't even like a great book, but it did say this one interesting thing, which is like, 
like getting into film is like about failing all the time and about like having your dreams crushed over and over until they they finally yeah don't get crushed you know and so like if you it's if you are in a relationship you have someone there for you every time you fail that's like hey you know what we should try again and obviously if you're with someone that's like very against you being a filmmaker that's problematic but if you can be in a relationship that's supportive I mean, A, there's inspiration to draw from it, obviously, about relationships and about love and about, like, I mean, watch, like, every movie Judd Apatow makes. It's, like, about his family, you know? Yeah. Like, I think you can be inspired by your family, but to me, I guess one thing I try to really do is I try to go out of my way to be there for my family because I know that there's going to be times when I just can't be there. I mean, last night I was, so I'm shooting this commercial tomorrow, and I was trying to get on the phone with the producer because I had some issues with the script and he only had 15 minutes to talk to me over like the course of three days. He was on a different shoot. And I got on the phone and two minutes into the phone, Kara's like, Oren, get in here. You need to help me. I mean, this is too much information, but my daughter has a cold and you can't give babies decongestant. So you have to use this thing called a nose Frida to literally suck the boogers out of their their head. And you can't really do it one person because one person has to hold down the baby's right, arms right. and legs and head while the other person does the sucking. And I was like, Kara, give me five minutes. <laughs> like, and it was like this kind of little mini fight because I was like, I've been waiting for three days to get my 15 minutes. And that's like, you you can wait 15 minutes. And she, in her mind, it's like, our child is sick. She can't breathe. And you are on the phone with some guy. You can't just tell him you'll call him back. How old is your child? Uh, six months, seven months, almost six and a half months. And so after that thing, you know, I think we could have either stayed mad at each other or we could have come. And I, I mean, I said to her, I was like, look, I told you, I, I told her at 6.30 p.m. I'm going to have this phone call. I've been trying for a very long time to get this, you know, guy on the phone. And I'm sorry, you know, I, I, I'm here. I, I, if you would have waited a few minutes, I would have done it. And she was like, yeah, I mean, I guess you did tell me about that. Like, like I feel like the more you communicate the more you say like hey sure. just so you know I'm, I auditioned for this role and I might get it and they might tell me the day before and we're going to have to cancel our trip to Italy because this is that important for me and it's like as long as you're not springing things on people or lying to people or like trying to make like as long as they realize that they're important in your decision making process I think is when it works and when they're going I, I've been in relationships when they are Every time something good happens, it's for me. They feel like it's a, taking me away from them, and that's not like a good relationship. So I don't know. My take on it is like you can make it work as long as you are present as a person and aware that right. when you are gone all night or for like four weeks shooting something, that it's taking a toll on your family, and you have to make it up up for it in some other way. You know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's advice. He says, uh, "Have a baby," because he had a baby, and then was like, "I gotta." I got my wife pregnant. I got to make the Godfather. And then he made the Godfather. Sophia is the baby in the baptism scene. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Bad advice. Don't, yeah, don't take that <laughs> advice. Aspiring filmmakers. Well, cool. Well, cool. so hopefully, you know, Chris, if you have any more questions, write us and every anyone else that listens. We love getting listener questions. Um, so please email us some more. And now we are going to move into our last segment, Unpaid Endorsements. Unpaid Endorsements. Jim, we've prepared you for this, so you have an endorsement. I do. I would like to endorse a series that's on Netflix right now, but it was originally on BBC Two called The Detectives, and it is incredible. And it is about rape and sexual assault in Manchester, and it was shot in 2014, 2015, and it is a really incredible look into what modern detectives have to do to put people behind bars. And it feels like a film. It does not feel like a documentary and it's all real and it is brutal. Like they cut to voicemails and police phone calls with the operator and it is like nothing you'll ever hear. And for that subject, I feel like that is the entire conversation in America right now is sexual assault and rape and to see what it actually does to people and also how it's handled it's handled very well in the documentary, but um, I feel like a lot of times I don't think that men understand how insane it can be, and I think that women tend to shy away from how insane it can be, and it is just an incredible objective view of what it's like, and it's 
it's a masterpiece. It's great. The Detectives on Netflix. And it's a documentary. It's a documentary series. It's three episodes. 45 minutes long. Oh, cool. Three 15-minute episodes? No, it's three 45-minute episodes. Okay, cool. Well, I'll check it out. So longer I'm looking than a lunch for, break. I'm looking for new stuff to watch. So I'm actually, I'm going to endorse another podcast, actually. Uh, I'm no. sh- I know. And it's it's a little bit of an obvious one. I'm sure people are aware of the writer's panel, the Nerdist writer's panel. The Acker and, or Ben Blacker. No. Acker and Blacker. Acker and Blacker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just Blacker. Yeah. Who's hosting. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, they originally, they created Thrilling Adventure Hour and write on a bunch of stuff. They're super great, super smart people. But so they do this TV panel at the Nerdist Theater and at ATX and all over the place. And they have an episode that I just listened to the other day with a bunch of development executives, people at Hulu, people at the CW, people at HBO. It's a new episode or an old episode? It's a, it's, I'm going to find it. It's a little older. He just put out a new episode about breaking stories. He has like people, um, you know, a bunch of writers from writers rooms just talking about how they break story. And I'm very excited to listen to it. I haven't managed to listen to it yet. But yeah, the description, the podcast in general is really incredible. But this one stood out to me because, you know, you get so much information from other writers and all of that. that, That's a little saturated right now. But learning what an executive is looking for and, and how insightful and smart they can be and how they're really about supporting filmmakers and writers and voices was really inspiring and nice. That's great. So uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I don't know why I can't find it. I must have skipped it. Okay, cool. Well, but, while we listen to Matt talk about finding I'll just that episode. So my unpaid endorsement. It's called, a, it's called Development Executive. <laughs> okay, cool. So I'm, uh, I'm doing this commercial tomorrow that is for a Japanese company. And we're working with Japanese clients. And it's like really funny because like what they think is funny or interesting or makes sense has like nothing to do with what us Americans think is funny or makes sense. Yeah. And so my friend that I'm working with showed me this YouTube video. It's actually a a Japanese series called Work, Work, Watching. Actually, I want to show you this, Jim, afterwards because it's all done. Each episode is done in one shot. It's animated, but it's (laughs) done in one shot. And this, uh, if you watch Work, Work, Watching Volume 5, it's like the behind the scenes of a Japanese director trying to direct an American actor. And... The American actor, like the entire time he's being directed, is like asking the director if this is funny because none of it seems to make any sense to him. Yeah. And it's like the most real thing I've ever seen. This is how I'm. So the, the commercial I'm working on tomorrow, I told you. It's Matt, like lost in translation, right? It's y- like, yeah. Like literally in the script, there's a line that says, Hey, mom, look at what I drew. It's cheek squeak. He's a crazy butt. And then the mom says, Don't look at that weird butt drawing. Download this app instead <laughs> comedy goal man. and i'm like what it cheeks yeah week? it's weird crazy like, but like I, how you'd think that like setup and payoff are are like universal things for comedy but it's really just english like english is such a diverse i don't know set of rules and functions that it's funny to like see other cultures that just don't obey that style of comedy yeah and so check out this video like our commercial is about this like all-american kind of midwestern suburban housewife and the person that they ended up wanting us to cast is a, a british woman <laughs> with a british accent because they think it's funnier like okay they've that, got a point there though that's pretty good yeah but it's it's just not do you know that um, it's for american audiences and you realize that a british woman is not your average midwestern yeah. american housewife sure, right sure, of course. Yeah. anyway we'll put a link to this video but it's like it's kind of exactly what I think my day tomorrow is going to be like. It's re- really cracked me up. Work, work, watching volume five. Cool. Well, we'll post all of those on the show notes. Jim, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, anywhere. I mean, I'm pretty, <laughs> yeah, searchable. Yeah, I'm on Twitter and You can't possibly Facebook. be the only Jim Cummings. No, actually, the, the number one Jim Cummings is uh, the guy that does Winnie the Pooh. He's like one of the most famous voice actors out there and... Uh, yeah, I'm dying to meet the guy. Oh, bother. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your, who are you on Twitter? It's Jimmy C. That's me. Jimmy C. That's me. Yeah. And cool. do you have a website as well? Uh, yeah, it's unisonla.com. Unisonla. Uh, cool. Cool. Jim, thanks so much for uh, coming to hang out with us. Thanks for having me, dude. This is great. Now we know what it's like to have won Sundance. Yeah. <laughs> now I need to, as soon as I raise my 12 grand, 
I can win the grand jury prize too. There you go. Well, you'll be shooting in your garage before you know it. <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, you can check out at just shoot it pod. If you want to follow us on Twitter or just shoot it podcast.com for the show notes, all the stuff that we talked about. I tweet at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm at Smitey Pileg. Our episode was edited by Eric Crapo. Thanks, Eric. If you want to drop us a line, you can always call us at our hotline on our voicemail. It's one two six two six. No, shit. <laughs> one two six two. One two six two shoot one. That's it. Or is it six two six? Just email us. Just email us. But I love voicemails, you guys. It's in the footer of everything. <laughs> anyway, music was provided by the Free Music Archive, and the musical act is Jazar. Take it away, Jazar. Right. Yeah. Um, cool, yeah. So, but he has uh, maybe bring down his gain a tiny <laughs> bit. That's probably it. I don't think Sorry, yeah, Eric. Uh, let's hear you again. Yeah, how's that? Yeah, that's better. That's it. Yeah. That's I'm not it. shouting into it. Okay. Just trying that's to better. get the noise to okay. yeah. signal ratio sweet for Eric. Nice and sweet, Eric. He loves a fat signal to noise Juicy ratio. Signal. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, where were we?